Well, the passage before us today, as you can see, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And as you're, you're turning there, let me read you something from a, a classic Christian book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. So this, so some of you heard this. I heard the ladies talked about this a little bit. There was no communication on that. That's purely God's providence that I was already planning on introducing the subject here with, with a quote from that book. And if you don't know that book, it's a classic book on the Christian life set in the form of an allegory of a almost a fantasy story, but whereas a lot of Christian books and movies are, are a little odd, and I'd be hesitant to recommend most of them, this book is actually surprisingly biblical, and it was written almost 400 years ago. And the book is about a, a Christian journeying through life and encountering all these different trials, uh, times of joy, times of trouble, times of sin and doubt. And at one point, the, the character, who's called Christian, arrives at this guy, the interpreter. And the interpreter is representing a pastor, and he's trying to help this guy learn the basics of being a Christian. And so he shows him different pictures, different pictures of truth. And so the final picture he shows him is concerning the subject before us today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me just read a, a little bit from that final picture. So the interpreter says to Christian, Stay until I show you one more thing, and then you shall go on your way. So he took Christian by the hand again and led him into a chamber where there was one rising out of bed. And as he put on his clothes, he shook and trembled. Then Christian said, Why does this man tremble like this? Then the man said, This night, as I was in my sleep, I dreamed. Behold, the heavens became exceedingly black. Also it thundered, and lightning struck in a most fearful way, that it put me into an agony. So I looked up in my dream and saw the clouds move at an unusual rate. And I heard a great sound of a trumpet, and saw also a man sitting upon a cloud with the thousands of heaven. And they were all in a flaming fire, and the heavens were burning. Then I heard a voice saying, Arise, you dead, and come to judgment. And with that the rocks split, the graves opened, and the dead that were in them came out. Some of them were exceedingly glad and looked upward, and some sought to hide themselves under the mountains. Then I saw the man who sat upon the cloud open the book and command the world to draw near. I heard it also proclaimed to them that surrounded the man that sat on the cloud, gather together the tares, the chaff, the stubble, and throw them into the burning lake. And with that, the bottomless pit opened about where I stood. I also sought to hide myself, but I could not. For the man that sat upon the cloud still kept his eye upon me. My sins also came to my mind, and my conscience accused me. Upon this, I woke from my sleep. Then Christian said to the interpreter, But what was it that made you so afraid of this sight? The man said, Why, I thought that the day of judgment was come, and that I was not ready for it. But this frightened me the most, that the angels gathered up several and left me behind. Also the pit of hell opened her mouth just where I stood. My conscience also afflicted me, 
And as I thought, the judge had always his eye upon me with anger on his face. Pretty serious picture that this Christian was shown in the interpreter's house. And this is just one example of an experience that believers have had ever since Christ's ascension. I think a lot of us, maybe our, our experience with Christianity has been very light, almost the Christmas season form of Christianity where there, you know, we know God is, is there and he's kind. And, and that's about all we hear in a lot of places, in Sunday school, in church, or uh, just from relatives we know talk about their faith. But a lot of us, when, we're, when God awakens us, he wakes us up, we know just instinctively we need to start getting serious about this book and actually reading it and seeing what it says, not just picking and choosing a few psalms and, and one comforting word or so from the New Testament. And as we read this book, we see, wow, there's a lot in this book about judgment. There's a lot in this book about hell. Jesus spoke of hell more than he spoke of heaven. I surprised, No one had to tell me that just reading the Gospel of Luke for the first time, that immediately stuck out to me. Wow, there's so much here about that reality that I've never heard before. And for a lot of people, the that results in, in fear, in a tremendous amount of fear. If you're taking Scripture seriously, we're not talking about people that just laugh at the Bible and laugh at the things that are taught here, but for people that really treat the Bible seriously as the standard of truth, that can be a real concern, especially when you, you know that you sin every day, maybe in times where you th- it's, you're doing well, you're not so afraid, but maybe you stumble, maybe you fall back into old patterns of life before you came to Christ, and you start to doubt your salvation. And this is a common, this is a common thing. John Bunyan, the man that wrote Pilgrim's Progress, I read his autobiography, and it seemed like for about two years, he wasn't sure if he was a Christian. I mean, this man that was so gifted, that blessed the church, not only with this book, but he was a pastor, a wonderful preacher, This man went through this two-year period of being terrified of the Lord. Uh, It's a common experience, and because of that, God hasn't left us without a word of comfort or a word of counsel for that condition. And that's the passage here. Let me read that. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant, and they will never escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us for wrath, 
but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. And so we see in this passage that there is counsel given to, the, uh, to a believer in this condition. If you remember from last week, we read about the concerns of some Christian for, for their departed relatives or friends. What happened to my mother? What happened to my wife or my husband or my child who professed faith in Christ? And we thought Christ was coming back, but this believer died. What happened to them? Well, the previous section was a word of comfort for them. Uh, they will rise from the dead and be with the Lord. In fact, they're with the Lord right now in their spirit. And so we don't have to be in any anxiety over them. They haven't missed anything. But now it turns, it's a similar concern, but now it's not the believer being concerned about a departed relative, but now the believer is asking, what about me? Am I ready to meet the Lord? Am I ready for the day of the Lord that's spoken about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? And so we see in this passage three directions that God gives us so that we can prepare for this. These are three directions anyone can follow, whether you're just uh, still making up your mind about Christianity and the Bible, still trying to, you're kind of uncommitted, or whether you are a believer and you're just experiencing doubts, or whether you're a mature believer and you want to be even more established in the faith and even more ready for this day. Here's three directions this passage gives us. This passage gives us. The first is in verses one to three, and that is to acknowledge the reality. So if someone's afraid of this day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the, the, the right response is not to minimize that. It's not to say, oh, don't worry. That's just, uh, it's a fairy tale. It's not, it's not really going to happen. Maybe your friends say, well, you know, religion, that your friends that aren't Christians might say, well, religion is just meant to help you in this life. Don't be so worried about, why are you so worried about judgment? The Bible is just here to help you be a little happier in this life. No, Paul would say, to these people that are afraid of the day of the Lord. No, it really is a reality. It really will occur. He says, you have no need of anything to be written to you. In other words, there's no great mystery about this. Uh, there's no secret knowledge about this. There's no date formula out there that you need to be aware of. But what is the day of the Lord? Before we get into the passage, we, we need to ask, what's the day of the Lord? Because it's, it's a phrase and it's a theme that, that if you've read the Bible, I mean, here we are in the Bible, right? And then there's all this before it. And so if you read the whole Bible, the day of the Lord, you'd recognize that as a theme. And so the day of the Lord, according to the Old Testament, is the end of the world, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's a time when there'll be this great upheaval, when life as we know it will be dramatically upended and, and changed through God's judgment. This will be the climactic outpouring of God's wrath on sinful humanity. Let me read you just a couple passages from the Old Testament to get a taste of what this is. Uh, Wail, one of the prophets says, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Or another prophet says, The day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. So it's a time of retribution. 
it's a, it's a time when God will repay the world. Right now, I mean, if we just look outside and you're hearing this, you might think, that's crazy. The world is so peaceful. The sun's shining. I'm going to go have a great lunch. I'm going to go, you know, relax later today and maybe watch TV or something. That's crazy to think about. Well, the prophets consistently warn about this, that things won't always continue like this. Another prophet, this will be the final quote, another prophet says, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or he goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even thick darkness with no brightness in it? So if you read Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the 12 minor prophets, this is a big theme, major theme, the day of the Lord. Some have even said this is the primary theme of all the prophets in the Old Testament, is the day of the Lord. This will be a time of earthquakes, plagues, water being turned into blood, Revelation tells us, darkness, burning heat, and lightning. And this day of the Lord, God in the Old Testament, is spoken of in the same breath as the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. You see that? The Lord for Paul is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the day of the Lord that the prophets spoke of, the day of the Lord God, is the same as the day of the Lord Jesus. Meaning that Jesus himself is actually God's agent of this day. He's the one that will repay the world for its sin on this day. So it is a reality. It's spoken of in the whole scripture. But the time is unknown. So the first thing you should know about the reality of this day is it's unknown. So you go on online and you read about the end of the world and, and all this, and you see all these, all these crazy guys predicting the day. It happens all the time. It's a way of just getting a bunch of money real quickly out of people is basically how this teaching has been used, the date-setting formula. You know, quick, give all your stuff away to me because it's coming uh, next week, and then it doesn't come, and, well, that's convenient, isn't it, for that guy? So you can just immediately discard all people who try to, to set things. And even now with the nation of Israel and, and all of this, I would encourage you, well, yeah, there's, there's something significant to Israel reconstituting the middle of the last century. But, okay, I'm not setting a date up here because these things are happening or saying, oh, we're definitely, we're definitely close here. Uh, Jesus told the apostles, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set by his own, his own authority. So the time is unknown, is the first teaching. But second, it will come when the believer is at peace. The unbeliever is at peace. Notice in verse 3, he says, while they, so they, the third person, in other words, he's speaking to all these people, some of which are very afraid of this day, but he's saying they, he's not saying you all will be saying peace and safety, so he's distancing the reader and you all from the people that will experience the destruction of this day. He's saying, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. So it'll come when the believer, the unbeliever, is saying peace and safety. When unbelievers are consoling themselves, oh, the world is so, our future is so bright. Uh, world peace is just on the, just over the horizon. Uh, or even as individuals, Oh, I have all my stuff in order. I have my retirement. That's just, I got that locked in. 
I got my, my great house. It's secure. I got my alarm systems. I live in a safe neighborhood, in a safe county, in a safe state, in a safe country. There'll be all sorts of, of things that unbelievers will be leaning on for their safety. And we'll come in, that, in the middle of that. It'll come when someone's just enjoying a Mai Tai on the beach. It'll, it's that kind of thing. You, and we have some moments of, uh, of great peace in the world, but those things are no, those experiences are no guarantee that this day is not coming. It will come suddenly, and there's two pictures that he gives us to describe how sudden it will come. It will come like a thief in the night. Think of that illustration like a thief in the night. Imagine if I told you, imagine if I was a prophet, which I'm not, but imagine I was, and God sent me to warn you, a thief will break into your house tonight. Definitely, 100%, a thief will break into your house. How would you prepare for that? Well, you'd probably cancel all your plans today. You'd probably, yeah, forget the lunch after. I'm going to either stay at a relative's house, or I'm going to call the police, or set up cameras, um, lock and load, etc. Okay? We would be preparing for that, for that event, wouldn't we? And so it's meant to convey that kind of, that kind of uh, a concern, right? When he describes the, the day of the Lord is like a thief in the night, that's how we should be living. It's like a thief in the night that could, could come any time. It's also like the onset of labor pains. Uh, so that is describing not only the, the suddenness and the pain, but also the certainty. Just as a, a woman that's full term pregnant, you just know, okay, at some point it's going to happen. It's not... You shouldn't be surprised, okay? It happens to literally every pregnant woman. Eventually, the labor sets in, a time of um, great pain. So the, the woman could be enjoying a nice meal with her family, could be sleeping, enjoying a nice conversation, watching a movie, something. And then all of a sudden, bam, she's thrown completely into this experience, right? The pain has seized her, and every other thing, everything else just vanishes, it all vanishes instantly. Oh, I was worried about uh, the, the decorations in my living room. And then once labor sets in, you're not worried about that anymore. You're doubled over in pain. Just longing, praying for this to be over as soon as possible. And so that's, those are the pictures we're given. The thief in the night striking at a time when you're asleep. And then the onset of labor pain, something that it will certainly come. It will be a sudden transition into a time of tremendous, tremendous agony. It will result in destruction. And so the unbelievers will be destroyed on this day. That's what it says here in verse 3. Then destruction will come upon them. So again, them, the third person, not the church, not the believer, but upon them. They will be destroyed. And the book of Revelation tells us, uh, gives us the most specifics about how that happens. It's talking about hell is included, but it's more than that. This will be a time not only where, where people will be consigned to punishment in that spiritual sense, but the Lord will actually uh, send out real physical judgments on the earth to put an end to human life, to unbelievers' lives. And no one will escape. It says that at the end of that verse. They will never escape. That's put very emphatically. The unbeliever, there is no possibility of escape. 
So there's different ways that a Greek writer could say, could say a negative statement. This is the strongest that's available to him. He says, they will certainly never escape. And why will, this, why will they not escape? Well, Jesus tells us that at this time when he returns to judge, he'll actually send out his angels to hunt down the unbelievers that are still alive on the earth. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the fiery furnace. So that's pretty serious. That's a pretty serious warning, a pretty serious teaching. And the point of this passage is not necessarily to pronounce judgment on everyone, but, I mean, if you don't know Christ and you're here this morning, don't, don't miss this. I mean, we're not, play, we're not playing here. This isn't just... A story hour where we tell mythical stories and encourage each other about, you know, different life lessons we learn from Jonah and, and Moses and all of that. This is, this is really going to happen. I believe with 100% certainty this will actually happen to unbelievers. There will be sudden destruction. And you don't, you don't know. You don't know when your time is up. You don't know. I mean, the world and Satan, he wants you to think, oh, it's you know, religion is this thing that you want to think about when you're 80-something and you're, you're kind of peacefully, okay, I'm getting toward the end uh, here and I can, I can now start to dabble in different religions and I'll make up my mind, but I, I don't want to waste my, my time now thinking about all this stuff. I would really urge you to, to decide today, to, to act as if this would be the last day that you could decide that's what the passage is saying, is that we should always regard each moment as our last moment of life. The day of the Lord could come, can come suddenly, even this afternoon, or while I'm speaking. And so if you've never been sobered by this reality, I doubt that you've read the Bible very much, and I encourage you to dive in to the scripture to read about this reality. The day of the Lord is a terrifying reality, but the point of the passage is not to terrify. So if you're not a Christian, I mean, you should be concerned and worried. I don't want to take away anything from that. But if you are a Christian, the rest of this passage is really meant to minister to you and to give you comfort. And so let's look at how God comforts the believer who may be worried about this day. The second direction here is in verse 4, and that's to recognize your identity. So how do you counsel someone who is worried that they will succumb to God's judgment, that whenever the rapture happens, well, they'll be left behind, and like this guy in the story, you know, the pit of hell will open up right next to him, and oh no, this is it. I wasn't good enough. I didn't pray enough. I didn't go to the right church. I didn't give enough. I didn't serve enough. God would want you to meditate and to think about your new identity. Verse 4, he says, But you, brothers, are not in darkness. You're not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Right? This picture of darkness in the Bible, it's emblematic. It's a symbol for a life lived under the dominion of sin. Light and darkness is a picture of, of righteousness and unrighteousness, of love for God, hatred for God. Uh, knowledge of the truth versus ignorance, willful ignorance of the truth. And so if you're a Christian, that means you're, a, you're not a son of night 
or of darkness. And that's not because you were born a son of light or a son of the day, as the passage says. You were born in darkness. The scripture says that because of original sin, we're all born blind. We're all born spiritually blind. We started out that way. You know, some animals, they're, they're young, will be blind for a certain amount of time uh, until eventually they mature and, okay, slowly they start to see. Well, that's like us. We're born totally blind to God. We're born in darkness. The natural man, the scripture says, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Why is that? Well, we're born in sin, but we're also born into a world that's enveloped in darkness. If you just survey out there all the teachings that, that are out there for people and how they encourage people to, to think about life or how to act, uh, the one word that you could label on all those teachings apart from Christianity is darkness. There is a realm of darkness that we're born into and that we live in. Why is that? Well, there's actually a god of this age who is called Satan. The scripture says the god of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So it's not just as simple as we're born blind toward the truth, blind toward God, but we're actually born under the dominion of Satan. And you may think, well, well, this is Satan's fault then. That if I'm in darkness, Satan is forcing me into the darkness. And there's no possible way for me to get out of it. But again, the scripture gives us more clarity. Jesus said that, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. So it's not that people would wish and pray that they would escape the darkness. They actually love the darkness. And so it's not so, Satan when he's spoken of as the one ruling this age it's not so much that he's forcing people, but that just that he's constantly cultivating this environment that the unbeliever loves. The unbeliever loves to be in the darkness. The de unbeliever desires to remain in this condition. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. So the unbeliever is like this man in a house, and he's knocked out all the lights. He doesn't want to see, he doesn't want any mirrors. He doesn't want to look at himself. He doesn't want to face reality. He knocks out all the mirrors and stoles blackout shades everywhere. And people that love him and are concerned for him, they try to come in and change the light bulbs and turn on the light. But instead he just, in a rage, drives them out. So that's what your friends do when you try to talk to them about, oh yeah, I went to church today. No, and they shut down. That's, that's what's happening. It's just no like, there's an instinct, no, if you start talking to me about that, I'm going to have to look at myself in the mirror. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to look at myself. I don't want to face up to the facts of who God is or who I am. And their hatred of the light is so strong that even if you were to tell them or I were to tell you that there's mercy, that this isn't a message of you're going to hell, period, but that God's actually reaching out his hands to you, that, that sin is so strong, that evil is so strong, they don't want to hear the first thing about this message, the message of light. But let me ask you, if you're concerned about meeting the Lord, does this describe you? So are you, are you sitting there with your Bible and with your pencil and listening to 
how I'm explaining scripture, are you doing that because you hate God? <laughs> or you hate studying the Bible? No, you're here because you want to know. And I could say the same thing as Paul. You're, you're not in darkness. <laughs> For you to be worried that you're going to be judged by Christ when he returns, that's, that's almost silly. You're, you're obviously seeking the Lord. I mean, if this is genuine, unless you're just putting on a big show, you know, if you're seeking the Lord with as many faults as you have, with as many sins as you have, if there's this honest desire to know really who you are and who God is and what God desires from you, I mean, you're, you're not in darkness. That doesn't sound anything like that person I just described. You hate your sin, right? You long to be better. You long to be more like Christ. You're not a son of darkness. You're, on the other hand, called a son of light and a son of day. That's the language in our passage here. You, in verse 5, you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. I think this is worth explaining a bit. So we could just stop at, well, you're a son of light. That means you're a Christian. And we move on. Well, I think there's something in that picture that's worth thinking about. Why else would God give us all these different descriptions of what a believer is? Why wouldn't he just say the same thing every time? A Christian. You're a Christian or a non-Christian. No, we have all these terms. A son of darkness, a son of light, a child of God, an heir of salvation. All these different terms, they're all unique. So what does this one communicate to us? Well, it doesn't mean that all that you spontaneously generated some sort of light within you. Like all of a sudden you became enlightened or by your own choosing or your own willing, all of a sudden you came from darkness, now you're light. You woke up one day and you had a new desire. We're given more explanation than just that. Christ, we have to begin with him. He's called the light of the world. I'm sure you've heard that before. Christ called himself the light of the world. The light. No other light exists in the world. The whole world is in darkness, and Christ comes into the world as the light of the world. And so, okay, if we're a son of light, that has to be related somehow to Christ. I'm not my own light. I'm not the light. Christ is the light. But somehow I have been associated with Christ, but now I am, by extension, referred to as a son of light. The message of Christ, the message of salvation in Christ, the gospel, is called the proclamation of light in a verse in the New Testament. So Christ is the light, and the message that he preaches and brings is also light. But what happens? Well, if we just stop there, we'd say, well, a lot of people have the light. Uh, an unbeliever is exposed to the light. An unbeliever can, can hear all these things. They can even learn Intellectually, I mean, there are people who have written massive commentaries on Scripture, who have spent years studying Scripture in some fancy European university, and written this huge tome on Scripture, but they're not, they're not converted. They would, and I read some of these things for help, and they can be helpful to some extent, but at the end of the day, while they know all these Greek terms and all this history and archaeology, they just treat it as a, a man-made document. They just treat all this stuff as, as just man's ideas. 
So these people aren't saved, and they have so much. Imagine that, spending years and years of your life studying a book of the Bible, writing this huge commentary on it, and you don't even know Christ. You're, you're still in darkness. So something has to happen in addition to just the hearing of the message. So I can preach the message. You know, I can say repent and believe in Christ and explain the atonement and what God did for us through his son. But something else has to happen. Without God, I'm just like one, like one of those friends coming into the house trying to, trying to turn the lights on. You're going to slap my hand away unless God does something else. And so here we get to conversion. So we're a son of light because we've been enlightened. Not only has the, the knowledge of the message hit our minds, but something has happened inside our soul that makes us willing to come to the light, willing to receive the light. The scripture says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So God is the one who shines the light of Christ into the soul and fills the whole soul with light. So that person is now converted. They are born again. And so a Christian is a son of light because the light of Christ has shone in his heart and filled him with light. He's now living in the day. He's now living with that saving knowledge, not only knowing it, but loving that message that God has brought to him. So God, he does this. He, he turns on the lights, so to speak, by sending real people, flesh and blood people, to bring the gospel to unbelievers. But with the, he does that with one hand, but with the other hand, he does something to the heart. So now that person, oh, they tuned out before, but now something's different. Now they want the light. Now they want the lights to be on. And this has a profound impact on the life. And this leads us to the second picture Paul says we're a son of day. And so the son of the day, very similar to a son of the light, but a son of the day speaks of the behavior. So someone that tends to do all, be most active at midnight is what kind of person would you guess? If I just said, oh, so-and-so is a, a son of night. He loves being out at night. He loves being out at midnight to, to five. That's when he's out and about doing stuff. What would you think he's doing? I mean, maybe he's, Maybe he's working and he has some, okay, but it's not that. Imagine it's not that. He, he's probably up to no good. He's probably a thief. He's probably partying, staying out at a bar till three in, three in the morning or, or something like that. But a son of the day speaks of daytime behavior. And so even the most debauched, depraved sinner, even, even most of them have some sort of respectability when it's daytime. You know, if, when they're just walking down downtown, or they're, they're visiting family and it's noon. Uh, there's just a certain amount of restraint that is put on you when, when the sun is out and when the lights are on and when everyone's out and about. So that speaks, the sun of day speaks about our, not only of our, uh, our new identity, but also our need to live that identity. So notice Paul doesn't just say, well, don't worry about the day of the Lord. You're a son of the day and you're a son of the night, uh, son of the light. He actually goes on to instruct and urge them uh, on to live a certain way. So he says in verse 5, you, you are all sons of light and sons of day. And then verse 6, so then, so here's, here's what effect and impact that should have on your life. So then, let us not sleep as others do. So here he gets, 
into not only recognizing your identity, but third, living your identity. So just to review, the first point was we need to acknowledge the reality of the day of the Lord. Second is to realize your new identity as a son of light. But now third, you need to live that identity. And that is one way to prepare for the day of the Lord, to live your identity as a son of, a son of the light. And the first thing he says is you need to be awake, not asleep, right? Let us not sleep as others do. So both sleep and drunkenness in this passage are not to be taken literally. I mean, it, it includes that. So if you're spiritually sleepy, you may sleep a lot literally. That may be true. If you're drunk spiritually, as I'll go on to explain, uh, you may, that may include being drunk physically and literally. But it's, it's broader than that. Being asleep in Scripture speaks of inattentiveness to God's Word or a disinterest in the truth. So the, the, the example of that here would just be you're sleeping. So I'm preaching, you're sleeping. Or your mom or your dad is trying to read some Bible verse to you and you're, you know, you're slumped down, you're falling asleep. That's inattentiveness to God's word. I think it's, it's helpful for us to, to, to read the Gospels and to realize the weakness of the disciples. So if you've ever been inattentive or sleepy spiritually, it doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're unsaved. It just means you need to wake up. Uh, the disciples, you remember the night before Jesus was crucified, what were they doing? He was praying, drops of blood pouring on his face. He urged them to pray. What did they do? They were sleeping. So the apostles of Christ who wrote most of the New Testament, they were sleeping the night before Christ was crucified. And so, one, I mean, that, that was a sinful sluggishness, and they were sleeping because really they didn't believe Christ would rise from the dead. But there's a, I think the Holy Spirit included that for us, that when we have these moments of inattentiveness, um, it doesn't mean that we're, we're damned. It just means that we need to wake up. We need to wake up. Jesus said, stay awake for you do not know the day nor the hour. So we need to be alert. We need to be attentive. I mean, it's like this, the soldier on the eve of battle. If you ever uh, read about the Civil War, seen a Civil War movie, I mean, what are these guys doing the night before the big battle when they're probably going to get killed? What are they doing? I mean, are they, you know, eating this huge, huge meal and getting drunk and goofing around and all oh, thinking about all these these different things they're doing. No, I mean, they're, they're staying light on their feet. Their mind is set on what they're going to do, how they'll respond, what the plan is. They're alert. That's like the Christian. We also need to be sober and not drunk. And so this is a, a really interesting, I think this is a fascinating picture of a spiritual condition. There's a, a spiritual con- condition spoken of here that's called drunkenness, spiritually drunk. So what, what does that mean? Well, we're meant to learn something about it from the physical reality of drunkenness. So when you are drunk, you are controlled by whatever substance you've indulged in. Um, that's controlling you. Uh, you. You are full of it. Your body is physically full or overfull of some basically poison, and that's controlling your behavior. But in a similar way, our heart 
can be so full of other things in the world that are really trivial, where there's no room. There's no room for Christ or no room for his word. And we can go through seasons like this as believers. We can go through a short season where this may describe us. When you come in here, maybe you're alert. Maybe you got, maybe you got some good sleep last night and you're not inattentive. You're alert, but there's a drunkenness there. There's all this stuff in your heart. You spent all week fig- worrying about your health. Or you spent all your time planning on your next vacation. I mean, that's just consuming your mind. What am I going to do next? And you're, you're always planning the next thing. Or food. Being obsessed with uh, going out to eat and just being consumed with that. Even hobbies, good hobbies, harmless hobbies, can get so huge and massive that they can consume our heart. From the moment we wake up, we're thinking about, not God, but this other thing that's really a passing pleasure. And we go to bed at night, we're not meditating on, oh, what, what God taught us that day, or, or um, we're not praying before we, we retire in the evening. No, we're meditating on the, these trivial things. And the world is this way. There's endless entertainment. So if you, if you want to pacify your conscience, there's a whole lot of things you can do. You can put on a, a VR headset. You can drown yourself in social media. You can watch endless movies and reruns of TV shows that you've seen millions of times before. You can be obsessed with your career. Not necessarily a bad thing to be successful or skilled in your career, but just so absorbed in that. So absorbed in the career and in your skills. And so that is, becomes an excuse as you're busy with being productive or finances. Jesus said, be on your guard so that your hearts will not be overcome with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. So again, speaking of the day of the Lord, speaking of this day, uh, you can be so worried. We, we may think worry is, is almost a neutral emotion or feeling. But Jesus is saying you could be so worried about your, you know, your home and your health and your money and, and, and even these things that you could be caught off guard. You could just go a long season without really being sober-minded as a, as a believer. But the Christian ought to refuse to be dominated by these things. We just let some things go, right? You just let them go. I mean, we can't be the perfect whatever. We need time in here. We need time in here every day. I mean, our great ambition isn't to necessarily solve world hunger or or invent things no one's ever seen before, be the, the best, uh, the best in our field. I mean, those things are noble, maybe, in, the, in themselves, but our great ambition needs to be Christ, needs to be seeking Christ. So at the end of the day, we just have to let some things go and entrust them to God. You know, you're worried about finances. You know, just go to work, get a job, go to work, and after you've worked hard, entrust it all to God. Just leave it all in God's hands, right? Just pray. Bring it all to God in prayer. Refuse to be dominated by the worries of life. But second, he says, you need to put on your spiritual armor. So a way that you can live your new identity is by being alert and being awake, but also by putting on spiritual armor. And that's in verse 8. He says, we are not, since we are of the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
And so the spiritual armor, a lot of you who know the, your Bible are thinking, oh, Ephesians 6, because there, that's the classic passage on the Christian spiritual armor. And it, there's, it's much more extensive in that passage. But here he just mentions two pieces of armor that the Christian ought to have on him. And this language of armor, it tells us, what, is, what does that picture tell us? What, how should we think of the Christian life if, if we need to have some sort of armor on? Why, why would you? Yeah, you need, someone's going to attack. The, the, the implication is that at some point you'll be attacked and there is something you need to be wearing in that moment of attack. So this is not the day of the Lord attacking you, just to be clear. He's not saying, oh, the day of the Lord is out to get you, but keep your armor on. No, uh, it's obviously our enemy, the devil, who's out to get us. The devil attacks all Christians, maybe not personally and individually, but in some sense through either his demons or, or just the, the climate and the circumstances of our culture that he is ruling over. He is seeking to undermine your faith, to destroy your relationship with God, uh, to sink into doubt and worry and all these things we were talking about. He attacked Eve. He attacked Job. He attacked David. He attacked Joshua, the high priest, and said, this man is filthy and polluted. He can't be, he can't stand before God like this, this guy. He's the accuser. He tempted Jesus. He tempted Peter, and Peter fell to him. That's sobering. And he attacked Paul as well. So attack is certain. The devil prowls around, the scripture says, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he's out there. I mean, this is, I mean, if I told, again, if I, we think, oh, this picture, and we're, it's kind of disconnected from us. But if I told you, there's a lion out here, it's an escape from the zoo, and it's a, it's a hungry lion, and it's dangerous. How would you walk to your car? That would change how you walk to your car, wouldn't it? Well, in the same way, isn't that true? Isn't that literally true that there is a lion prowling around? But a lot of us, we just think, oh, it's all, it's all going to be fine. And I'm, I'm kind of taking things casually. And then, oh man, when I, when I sink or I fall, or I have this great moral failure. I, I'm surprised. It's, it comes surprising to us. But it's because of this is because he's out there and he goes after the weaker, he goes after the weaker ones. He goes after the people that are not wearing their armor, that aren't ready, that aren't alert and attentive. He's not stupid. And so we need to have the breastplate of faith and love. What, what's faith and love? Again, we want to be specific. We, wanna, we don't want to have vague ideas about these words in the Bible. We want to know what, what is faith, what is love, why is this, what's a breastplate, breastplate made of faith and love? What does that mean? Well, the breastplate would obviously cover this area with your vital organs, and even the ancient people understood, okay, you get shot here, you're dead. And so they had a breastplate to protect them. Faith and love is often, often occurs as a pair. It often occurs as a pair. I think I've even described it as twins that you, that you see in Scripture always together. Faith speaks of our belief and our trust in God. Okay, so faith speaks of our, our leaning upon God, right? That song we just sang, leaning on God, trusting in him. But even more specifically, by faith, by believing the gospel by faith, 
God grants us perfect righteousness in Christ. And so we are clothed with a perfect status. We are seen by God as perfect before God because of our faith in Christ and what he's done. And so we, when we meditate on that and we cultivate that faith, right, by, cult, by meditating on the gospel, by thinking of the gospel, learning deeper truths that are related to the gospel, we cultivate this virtue of faith. But this is also connected to love. So faith would be imputed righteousness. Right? We are righteous. We are made perfect solely by believing in Christ for salvation. But in addition to that, we need to, because of that, now start to love. Love needs to now flow out of us. And love does not obtain salvation. Love is the evidence of salvation. It's the fruit of saving faith. And so what happens? Let's say you maybe even have experienced this. You've had a great moral failure or you backslidden as a Christian. How do you, what do you start to think of? Let's say there's the several weeks or even a few months where you've slidden back pretty severely as a Christian and this happens. How do you start to think? Do you have this sweet, this sweet assurance of salvation? Are you singing this song by Fanny Crosby? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. No, I'm guessing that's not what you're thinking. You're starting to doubt. You're starting to think, well, maybe, maybe God's given up on me. Maybe I'm not saved. Uh, maybe this is evidence that my faith was not real, and because I abused my privileges, then now I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless and sinking into despair. And this, this does happen. But God would not want you to stay there. God would not want you to stay there. Uh, God would want you to, to put the armor back on, to come back to him. Okay, it's time to put the armor back on. You fell, but learn from that falling, learn from that failure, and now let's try again and give attention, and maybe that experience will teach you to be more alert, and perhaps that's the reason God permitted you to fall into that, is to just give, to, to encourage you to treat the Christian life a little more seriously. It's not this, that we can't just skip, skip our way to heaven. We'd, it's, it's not that kind of tone. It's a serious endeavor, and there's real dangers. But then the second piece of armor is called the helmet. As a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we need to put on the helmet of salvation. So different from faith and love, faith and love are, I guess, the, the evidences of salvation. If, you, if I just wanted to uh, talk to you and you came to me and were worried about the state of your soul, I would go here, faith and love. Uh, okay, let's see, faith. Do you know the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Uh, okay, it seems like you do. So there's one. How about love? Have you sensed the change in your life since you came to Christ? Not only that you believe the right things, but other people around you would even say, you know, you have changed somehow. You, you are starting to, I see some love starting to seep through, right? Where before it was just all selfishness and all darkness. So that's what I would look at. Faith and love, almost the evidences of salvation. But then third, we, we're not left with that. We also have the helmet of the hope of salvation. And I would give this piece of armor a nickname. I would call it the Christian's pillow. Okay, so the helmet of the hope of salvation, that's really speaking about and symbolizing the ultimate pillow 
that you rest your head on as a Christian when you have doubts, when you're worried about the state of your soul? There's this pillow God has provided for you. There's this helmet he's given you so that you can be absolutely sure that you will stand before God, that the day of the Lord will not overtake you like a thief, that you are assuredly saved, and that is something you can definitely know, and God would want you to have an assurance of that. And how does he describe this? Just as we look at the words and and how the sentence is put together in verses 9 through the the end there of our text, we see the word for at the beginning of verse 9. So for is a word of explanation that's explaining something that's come before. So what is he explaining? Well, he's explaining the helmet. He's explaining how you can be so certain that you are saved, that you will be saved finally when Christ returns and when it really is made evident. So you're saved now as you're a Christian, but in a sense, your salvation is also future because it will be publicly manifested on that day when you are, you are not judged, but you are brought and resurrected and brought to be with Christ forever. So how does he explain this, this hope of the Christian? He says, For God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice he doesn't say, Well, you can be sure, you can be certain of your hope of salvation because you are the best Christian I've ever seen. Or your faith is the, the creme de la creme kind of faith. Just you have the pure faith, the right kind of faith, the strongest faith. That's not what he says. How does he explain that hope that we have? For God. So our assurance is ultimately anchored in God. It's ultimately anchored and based on and resting upon something God has done. What did God do? He says, God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? God has not appointed us for wrath. What does that word mean? Appoint. Well, I looked it up and just looked at a few other passages to try to get a sense of what that means. And, and it does mean appoint. So there's no, there's no mystery here. It means to appoint, to destine someone for something, to consign someone to a condition, to take someone and then to freely assign a destiny to that person, to appoint them for something. Okay, Jesus used this word, speaking to his apostles. He said in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So he uses the same word, appointed. So there's, a pic, there's an, an example of the word. Jesus, he's saying to these guys, I didn't make you apostles after you like, came forward and insisted on being apostles, right? He didn't recognize them as apostles. He sovereignly chose them, these 12 men, to be apostles, and he appointed them to that office. So this means to appoint an, individu- an individual to something. It means, if I may be so bold, to say it means election. So it's speaking of the doctrine of election. It's speaking of God's sovereignty of salvation. The Christian can be certain of his salvation because of something God has chosen for him. He's appointed him, not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. salvation. Not just the possibility of salvation, but the actual obtaining of that salvation is what Paul is saying to these believers. 
We can think even of Paul, how he was called as an apostle. I think it's funny how people try to say, well, I chose God. You know, God provided this great offer, and then I just, one day, I woke up and chose God. Well, okay, think of Paul. He was on the Damascus Road, breathing murder and threats against the disciples of Christ, planning to arrest all these people in Damascus. And then all of a sudden, Christ appears to him physically and commands him to go speak to the Gentiles, to now be the apostle. So I'm just struggling to find where, the, where the, like the, the, the cho- Paul's choosing was in that. Uh, Christ did not present an invitation to him. He appeared to him and, and commanded him to be a believer and then to become an apostle. And he said to the disciples that were worried about this guy, Paul, when he was converted, he said, he is a chosen instrument of mine. And so we've already met this in 1 Thessalonians, this idea in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, the word election is right there in that verse. Um, and then in 2 Thessalonians also, chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, God has chosen you for salvation. And so we just take that at face value. We take those words at face value. That God has appointed us for salvation. Okay, but you may be thinking, well, wh- how can I know that I'm, that I'm chosen? How can I know that, well, okay, maybe that's true, but maybe God didn't choose me. Well, here's how you go about that, okay? There's all these different vital signs that, that exist for Christians. So there's, there's different vital signs that, my, um, that a Christian will display. And you just want to look for one. Just try to find one evidence of saving faith in you. It could be even small could be a very small evidence. But if you see an evidence of conversion in you, then that's evidence not only of your new birth, but also of God's choice and his election of you. And so that in that way, you can rest on God's sovereignty. And that's why it's so important to be devoted to a consistent life. It's not that our righteousness and our consistency will earn us salvation, but that but that really gives us a, a greater assurance of, of our salvation and election. And when we, we backslide, doubts, that's just part of the package. The doubts come in when we slide away from God. But notice he not only says that God planned our salvation, but God actually accomplished our salvation as well. In verse 9, he says, Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And so he says, Christ died Right? He suffered the penalty of sin, and he died for us. Not just that he died for sin, but that he died specifically for us. This word for is very important, a very important word. It describes the substitutionary death of Christ. So Christ's death was not general. It was on behalf of certain people, and it was for us, the same group of people in the previous verse. God has not appointed us for wrath, but for salvation. So who, is the, who are the people that Christ died for? They're the people that God has appointed for salvation. So notice we, we're beginning with God in salvation. And so we're saved because of what something God has done. It's not that God has provided this opportunity for you and you need to be noble enough to accept it, but God has actually sovereignly secured and purchased our salvation through the death of Christ. 
but also it is a salvation that will certainly be realized. He says, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. So, so Christ died. He wouldn't have died if this was just a, a faint possibility of you being saved. He died to actually secure your place in heaven. He died to actually purchase and secure your escape from judgment. Okay, so this is, this is the pillow. Again, we're, we're, just, we're still thinking of this pillow that we have in the Christian life to rest on. When you have a colossal failure in your life, when you have a, and there will be some of these, some of us will be here. There'll be this colossal failure and we will be so humbled and discouraged and almost despairing. But we need to, we need to fall back on God's graciousness and his mercy in salvation and trust in Christ only for our, our salvation and not in our, our feelings or even how consistent we are in our praying or in other things like that. So our life is now bound together with Christ. God has secured our eternal life. But finally, and with this we'll conclude, we need to counsel one another with truth. Okay, so we need to live sober-mindedly, put on the armor, but that's not enough. So it's not enough for you to just be in your nice study, wherever you have, slipping in and out of church. No, there's a, an actual corporate element to you being prepared for the day of the Lord and to actually being assured of your salvation in light of this great day, this terrifying day that terrifies many people. And that is that we need to com- counsel one another with truth. And it's really clear in this passage that more is being meant than just the pulpit, okay? So here, it's not the pulpit in view in verse 11. He says, comfort one another. So among all of you. So I, I get out of here and there's actually ministry that can happen among you. Important ministry that can happen one to one. And he says also, build up one another. And that other one another is a different phrase. It it's literally says one the one. So just being explicit, like one on one, one on one. And a lot of churches have this kind of ministry where, you know, they encourage believers to just read the Bible together. You don't, need to, you don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to be a Christian for years and years and years. Uh, you have something, to, you have something to, to give other people. If you've been a Christian, if you are a Christian, there's a lot of comfort. You can provide a lot of edification that you can contribute to another believer just by talking to them. Uh, just by talking to them about the state of their soul, uh, what... what uh, what is worrying them, what, what troubles they're meeting with in the Christian life. So we should be doing that, reading the Bible together, uh, helping us discern problems in our lives. We need other people in our lives, looking at our lives. We, I mean, we can't see everything. We have blind spots. And we need to teach those who are ignorant of these things. So even the most, even if you just know the basics, I mean, someone... Someone doesn't know that. <laughs> There's someone that doesn't know even the most basic things of Christianity. And they would benefit from your ministry. And so Paul tells them that. Not only, hey, listen to this letter I wrote you, but actually I want you to take what I've written to you and start circulating it around you in your homes, your dinner table, uh, you know, your lunches, just as you're with other believers. You need to comfort one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. And I would echo that. I think we are, we are doing this. 
you know, this is kind of a cult, you know, what's a new church, but this is a um, part of our culture that I think is there, and we need to cultivate that and grow it. And so what have we seen today? Uh, we, we've really seen God's counsel for the person who is afraid of the return of Christ, which may sound silly. It does sound silly to the unbeliever, right? But, but for some of us, this is real. We struggle with this. And here's the counsel, right? You may be very weak. You may be a great sinner. Uh, you may not think that uh, you have much to offer God. You may not have a, a perfect track record with God. I mean, no one does. But, but the question that I would just repeat to you is, are you standing in the light, right? Have you come out of the light? Uh, have you come to God and honestly said to God, I want, I want to know the truth about myself. You know, I want to know more about who I am, how I can please you. I want to know more about the gospel. I want to live sober-minded. I mean, I, I don't feel like I am, but I desire that. That's what I most want. I would encourage you that you are who this passage is talking about. You are a son of light, and there's no need for you to be afraid of God. Afraid of God in this craven sense where we're just, we're terrified of God, and we, we, pass, we try to pass, think of him as someone to pacify with good works. That's not who God is. You're a child of light. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God and a child of light. But don't, don't just stop there because of that, okay? Because of that, we need to be sober-minded. And there should be just this soberness to the Christian, this alertness to the Christian that makes us um, diff- just different, a little different than, than our neighbors and our friends. And so I hope that is helpful to you. It's certainly helpful for me as I've been meditating on this this week.